0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Have you ever watched an end of the world movie? I'll admit that I rather like apocalyptic or dystopian movies in literature, but I've noticed that all of these movies follow the same basic formula. The main character is at first the only one who knows the truth, that the world is in grave danger. This person has discovered that the reason for all the power failures is an imminent alien invasion or that the strange weather over the Pacific Ocean is a dangerous break in the atmosphere, or that the illness that can't seem to be diagnosed is some deadly new virus. But you get the idea, right? This person usually, some brilliant but unknown scientist, discovers the truth and is desperately trying to convince the powers that be that the world is in terrible danger. But everyone thinks this poor person has gone out of their mind. Even their own family and friends usually think they've lost their senses and have become a raving lunatic. But then it becomes apparent that this person was right all along, usually in some undeniable way. And now everyone turns in desperation to this person, seeking their advice and hoping that they have a plan to save them all. And because it's Hollywood, this person usually does. In today's gospel reading, Jesus is the one who knows the truth. That the world is in grave danger. The world is being controlled by sin and by Satan. And Jesus knows that these forces are more than the world can handle. More than we can handle. We are completely under the dominion of sin and Satan. He is the only one who can save the world from them. But almost nobody believes him. The crowd is looking to be entertained. His family thinks he's gone out of his mind. They've come to restrain him. The religious leaders think he's working with the devil. They think he has an unclean spirit. But the truth is almost exactly the opposite. It is the world that's gone out of its mind. The world, you might say, has an unclean spirit and is being ruled by Satan. And Jesus has come to save the world to free the world from its captivity to sin, death, and the devil, and has come to bring the world to his senses before it's too late. And when you think about it, that's still Jesus' mission today. The same message is still the one that we need to hear. The world is in in grave danger. It's gone out of its mind, and it's being ruled by the powers that secretly or not so secretly want to destroy it. And Jesus is the only one who can save it, who can save us. He is the only one who can bind the strong man and free us from the bondage of sin and death. Now, for those of you familiar with this particular passage in Mark, you might be thinking to yourself, hold on, Jim, this passage is about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I know the strong man is bound and Jesus has has overcome sin and death, but how do I know if I've committed the unforgivable sin? This has long been considered one of the hard sayings of Jesus, and maybe rightly so. It certainly is a bold statement. But to fixate on this statement is to miss the entire focus and hope and warning of today's text. That Christ did not come to overthrow the earthly powers and heal illness, but he came to overthrow a power that we were powerless to overcome. A power that required him to bind the hostage taker the power of Satan that's been holding creation captive since the garden and to free us from the power of sin and death. All the miracles, all the healings, all the exorcisms serve only to prove that the kingdom of God is on the move and that he is the one that John prophesied in Mark chapter 1, that one greater than I, the thong of whose sandals I am unfit to untie, has arrived. Not only is Jesus the strong man the stronger man he is the strongest man the one that all the powers of sin and satan could not oppose now before we get right into the text today a little you know we see a little bit of background where we last week we were we were reading about Jesus sending the apostles out calling them and sending them out and even before then in the previous chapter and a half we see a progressing series of conflicts and resistance culminating with the Pharisees' counseling how to destroy Jesus. (laughs) So Jesus calls and commissions the twelve, sending them out on two missions, one to preach and two to cast out demons. This is what Jesus himself was doing, and as the teacher does, so do the students. But at the close of that section of last week, we see an interesting turn start to happen. In verse 19, immediately prior to today's text, we see the we see the statement, and Judas and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We see that even among his companions there was opposition. There was one who would betray him. He would face resistance even from among one that he called we're told that Judas would betray Jesus. We learn elsewhere in Scripture that Judas is the son of perdition. In the King James, what the ESV calls the son of destruction. But lest we think that this conflict arose out of nowhere, this conflict has been present from the beginning. We see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that there is a conflict when, when God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent and he tells the serpent you will strike his heel but he will crush your head the conflict is there from the beginning but there's also the promise that not only is there the conflict one stronger is coming who will end your hold while Satan may get his licks in the coming redeemer will ultimately crush him we might I'm reminded of the lyrics of the the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, that the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. For while Satan may seem to have dominion and strike at God's people and creation, there would be a coming time in which he will be bound and defeated by the coming Messiah. That conflict sets the stage for the following verses. So as we get into our text, to fully appreciate the depth of meaning in this particular text, we do need to recognize that Mark uses certain literary devices to communicate a spiritual truth. That the organization of the text is organized in a particular way. So to more fully appreciate what Mark is communicating, there are two two things that we need to look at. Something is called the inclusio and an intercalation. So as we talk about the, the inclusio, we see this is more of a bracketing or an enclosing a story or a section by using repetitive words, phrases, or themes at the beginning and end. What's in the middle is the primary focus. That's the good stuff. It's like an Oreo cookie. So what does this look like in Mark? Well, we see at the, be- at the very beginning and the very end of this section today, In verses 20 and 21, Jesus' family is looking for him. But at the very end, in verses 31 and 35, Jesus rebukes his family. The section of the text today is bracketed. The section of the the text today is bracketed by a conflict with Jesus' family. But that's not the only bracketing that happens. There's a second set in verse 22. The scribes show up and accuse Jesus, but then in 28 through 30, Jesus rebukes the scribes. So today's text is bracketed by by a series of two conflicts that happen, and the real meat of today is Jesus' rebuttal and parable that happens in verses 23 through 27. That's the good stuff. All of it's good the meaning of it the meaning the meat of today's text happens here but there's also a second thing at work in this text it's a series of sandwiching stories what they what they would call an intercalation it's a sandwiching different stories in the middle of a story how does that look in this text? Well, the first story, even ha- the first part of the story happened last week. Jesus sends out the twelve for ministry. The first part, that gets resumed, where we'll pick up next week, where Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower in responses to ministry. So it's bracketed around a story of ministry. The second story, It's the story with Jesus, the crowd, and the family. The crowd shows up, the family shows up. And then it resumes with Jesus, the crowd, and his family. And then it switches to a different episode with the scribes and addressing their blasphemy. Now, we don't want to get lost in the weeds of literary criticism but understanding the literary features that are present in the text are critical to understanding the spiritual truth of Jesus' purpose here. Ultimately, this section of the Gospel of Mark is about ministry. It's about ministry, others' response to Jesus' ministry, and the reason for ministry. Because Jesus is the stronger man who can overcome the power of sin and death. So with that in mind, with that, with that structure of the text in mind, let's turn to the text and let's read the text today. We'll start in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Truly I say to you all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin for they were saying he has an unclean spirit and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him they sent to him and called him and a crowd sitting around was sitting around him and they said to him your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my, mo- my brother and sister and mother. So we have a certain cast of characters that show up in this episode, but each one... Shows a certain amount of opposition to Jesus. The first type of opposition that we see, we see the crowds show up. Now, to understand the crowd's opposition, we don't see the crowds actively opposing. We, don't, we certainly don't see them responding like his family or like the scribes. but the crowds the crowds are a frequent fixture in the Gospel of Mark. The crowds understand that Jesus is able to perform great miracles and that he has authority, but they miss the point. A couple weeks ago, we, see, we saw in Mark 3.8 that they're drawn to him. When they heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They're there for what he's doing. They're there for what, what a Roman writer of the time Referred to when the crowds in Rome would get a little bit unruly. The emperor would throw a party in the Colosseum to distract them. They were being entertained with bread and circuses. And it got them off track. They're there for what can be done for them. They kind of miss the point altogether, though, of what Jesus' ministry really is they're drawn by the miracles. While the crowd misunderstands his purpose, they're still attracted to him. But they're attracted for the wrong reason. We see that each time the crowd gathers to him out of this attraction for what he's doing, Jesus uses the opportunity to teach them about the kingdom of God and the gospel, and this time is no different. The crowd is here. They may be here for the wrong reason. But they're here, and I have the opportunity to teach them the truth. And we'll see that later on in this section. We see that the crowds here are not really all that different than those who are drawn to prosperity preachers or seeker-sensitive churches of today. They love the miracles, they love the exorcism, they love the, hearing, the healings and the great show. But they miss the mark in understanding the deeper truth of Jesus' purpose in ministry. They want to be entertained. They miss the call to repentance. But that's not the only type of opposition we begin to see. As the text progresses, we begin to see a stronger Firmer opposition, fomenting against Jesus, we see his family. Those they're opposed because of the misunderstanding of who Jesus is fundamentally. In Mark three twenty one, it's the first time that his fam- that Jesus' family shows up in the Gospel of Mark, and to be sure, it's not a flattering image. They assume that he's crazy. The the word there in the Greek is he's beside himself. He's out of his mind. We see this this may seem bizarre because the same one, Mary, who was told by the angel Gabriel who Jesus is, the child that she would be carrying, is presumably among the family members saying he's crazy. So we may begin we are, we're starting to see something more sinister at work happening here. While, they're looking, while they look at Jesus' teaching and his deeds, they come to the conclusion he's out of his mind. We're not told why they say this, but we could surmise that maybe it's because of the social disgrace of being associated with him. Maybe they're facing harassment in the synagogue from the scribes who are already plotting to kill him. We know that from verse, chapter 3, verse 6. But whatever the reason, they were out to stop him. The word used here means to seize or to take hold of. This word is the same word that's used of the crowd in Gethsemane when they came to seize hold of him and arrest him. his family assumed that he was crazy and they were going to do something about it. They're not talking about get, leading him away to give him a good talking to. He was going to be hauled away and restrained because he's out of his mind. And in the, in the extreme, what this could have looked like in this particular culture at this particular time, the, the Jewish understanding... of of insanity, it was regarded as evidence that the person was under the wrath and punishment of God for extreme wrongdoing. It was understood that God in his wrath has completely withdrawn his protection and abandoned the person to evil forces. Now, the the treatment for insanity at this time usually consisted of restraint, imprisonment and isolation various forms of torture, and in the extreme, stoning. While we don't know the intent of the family in seizing Jesus, an understanding of the historical and cultural background of this can certainly give us an idea of what this might entail. These were not people who were a little bit perturbed. They were set on stopping him. And we'll find that Jesus' family is not all that unlike the scribes. Jesus states that all sins will be forgiven even blasphemies. And in the same in Matthew's account of this same episode, Jesus states more specifically that G, that blasphemy against the son of man will be forgiven. Understood properly, Jesus' own family blasphemed him. And we see later on in the text that even after Jesus rebukes them, by calling what they said blasphemy, they still hunt him down to seize him. Despite this... Now, we should take heart. Because despite this unflattering introduction to Jesus' own family, we see later in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that at least some of Jesus' own family came to follow him that while they didn't understand him now and they thought he was crazy, at least later on, some of them came to understand who he was and why he came. The third type of opposition we see, and and certainly the most severe type of opposition, we see that of the scribes. Those who know the truth, but they're opposed because of their own hardness of heart. Once again, in verse 22, the scribes show up. But these aren't just any scribes that show up. These are the scribes from Jerusalem. These are the elite scribes, those learned enough and esteemed enough to be at the temple. Presumably, they were alerted by the local scribes and the Herodians who plotted how to get rid of Jesus back in verse 6. These are the teachers of the law who would have known the law better than anyone else. These would have been the most educated Jews of the day. So here the big guns had arrived. But the first words that they utter, they declare him to be possessed by Beelzebub. if that weren't bad enough to understand this particular insult we have to understand that this is referring to the Philistine god Baal the god who the god that the Israelites had prostituted themselves to all throughout their history the name literally means lord of the heavens or the lofty place but to the Jews they turned it around and using a slightly similar sounding phrase it means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung. It, is a, it was meant intentionally to be a mockery. Because this was seen, Beelzebub was seen as the source of all sickness. This is the cause. So in saying that he's in league with Beelzebub, they're saying he is in league with the one who is causing all sorts of evil. The scribes rightly recognized that Jesus' deeds were supernatural in origin. He wasn't out of his mind as his family assumed. He wasn't just entertaining as the crowd had assumed. They rightly understood that Jesus' deeds were supernatural in origin. But they attributed attributed those deeds to a false god. The false god that had led the Israelites astray on countless occasions. Who had become synonymous with Satan himself. They called the Holy Spirit the power by which Jesus was doing the things he was doing, a debased and an unclean thing. And while Jesus' family may be forgiven their blasphemy because they simply failed to recognize the words and work of Jesus as supernatural in origin, the scribes knew full well Jesus' work was supernatural. And despite all of the evidence, they continued to debase that power by which he was working. this attribution this is what ultimately results in Jesus rebuking them in verses 29 and 30 Jesus is in effect saying wait you're calling me damned no i'm saying you're damned now before we move on you know this is the usually the point in the text where People say, well, this, this, this is what I want to know. You know. How do I know, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Because certainly the consequence that Jesus lays out in the text, that one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never experience forgiveness. You know, this is a, certainly a serious thing. While not the point of the text, certainly a serious thing. So just kind of a quick note on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We see from the text that the nature of the sin is to ascribe what is the obvious work of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. The power by which Christ is casting out the demons. We're saying, Now that that's not of God. That's Satan doing that work. But it's not a momentary attitude, but it's a settled condition of opposition to the work of the Spirit. This isn't something that we see, oh, the scribes woke up one morning and said, eh, you know what? We're going to go out and we're going to oppose Jesus today. We see throughout the entire text of the Gospel of Mark to this point that the scribes are in settled opposition to Christ. They are looking to kill him. And any reason is going to be good enough. And more practically, one who's concerned about it probably hasn't committed it because those who commit it know the truth and they actively suppress it. We look at what the scribes did. They rightly discerned that this is being done by a supernatural force. They knew it. They knew the truth of it. And in the face of all the evidence and even in the face of the later rebuke by Christ, and we'll see in the text following, they didn't care. They were absolutely settled in their opposition and they would continue despite the warning in that opposition. So in the text, we see that there's an opposition to Jesus coalescing. Those who their, thro- who their own apathy are wanting to be entertained, those who misunderstand him, and those who are actively suppressing and opposing the truth. But this opposition is not simply due to lack of knowledge and awareness. This darkening of the mind is understood as being the work of sin in the hearts of men, a sin that has resulted in man being in rebellion against God and in league with his enemies. So we have the cast of characters in this section that's been laid out. But beginning in verse 23, we begin to have Jesus' argument. And verses 23 through 27 really are the core of this episode in the Gospel of Mark. It's here that Jesus explains who the enemy really is. It's not the Romans, it's not sickness, it's not poverty, but it's Satan himself. To quote Paul in Ephesians 6, maybe a bit anachronistically, Jesus' battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where Jesus' battle is. And by binding the strong man, it will bring, uh, binding the strong man will bring about the opposition of those in league with him and his influence. Now, before we fall into the trap of the devil made me do it, we need to understand that Satan is a really good anthropologist. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He understands the sin and the evil that lies in the hearts and minds of men and will use that to nudge us down the road of rebellion. So we see Jesus counter. He starts flat out pointing out the absolute illogic of what the scribes are saying. He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus almost incredulously responds back, how can Satan cast out Satan? This should be understood as not how, not by what power, but What interest does he have in casting out his own? To what ends? What type of prince maintains his power by harming those loyal to him? The gist of what Jesus said to the scribes is this, granting that spirits are cast out by aid of another spirit, more is needed in in the latter than just superior strength. Otherwise, the stronger but similar spirit is is just simply destroying an ally there must be a qualitative difference in both nature and interest. The statement alone exposes the illogic of the murderous intent of the scribes. The more the scribes are confronted, the more their utter contempt for who Jesus is is exposed. And he has no problem directly confronting the scribes on the conspicuous illogic that betrays their, their contempt. So Jesus' argument moving forward basically goes like this. The one, a force opposed to itself cannot stand. Jesus makes this argument directly to the scribes, but in the presence and likely for the benefit of the, cr- of the crowd who is around him. Because remember, we're told that the crowd gathers. We're told what the crowd's interest is. They're hearing what he's doing. But Jesus never misses an opportunity to teach the crowd about the kingdom to teach the crowd about the gospel, about repentance. So while he's directing it to the scribes, it's likely for the benefit of the crowd around him. The principle of the argument that a force opposed to itself cannot stand is laid out in a series of many parables. We first see in verse 24 that a kingdom divided by, against itself cannot stand. A kingdom that's characterized by infighting and civil war will fall prey to the surrounding kingdoms and be swallowed up by it. A kingdom that is fighting itself is at its weakest and has no need of an outside enemy because it will destroy itself from within. To reiterate the point, we then see in verse 25, likewise, a house, that is a family or a household that's divided against itself, will not survive. A house whose members are putting their own self-interest above that of the house will find it quickly devoid of any riches and power. It will quickly be overtaken by other houses and it poses absolutely no threat. An enemy that is bent on destroying itself poses no risk. So if Jesus is in league with Satan and divided against him, the scribes should not be worried because then Satan's kingdom and Jesus are rapidly coming to an end before their very eyes in an act of cosmic suicide. Therefore, their anger and opposition to Jesus, who is actually opposing Satan, exposes that they are actually in league with Satan himself. It's the illogic of their own position that demonstrates this conclusion. But he concludes it with another mini-parable foretelling how the strong man's rule ends. Jesus explains that to raid the strong man's house you first must bind him. Otherwise that's not going to work out so well. If you break into the house of someone who's stronger than you, how does that work out? It doesn't. Certainly not well for the one breaking in. The strong man can only be overcome by a stronger man. But we already know that a stronger man is coming. This was prophesied all the way back in the garden that while you, you strong man may strike his heel, a stronger man is coming who will crush your head. And we see John talking about and referring to Christ as one, the thong of whose sandals I am unfit to untie. A greater one is coming. We see a practical example of the truth that you can only plunder the strong man after he's been bound. We see a practical truth of this in Judges 16 with Samson and Delilah. The Philistines want to capture Samson. Even they realize that in order to capture him, he must be bound and rendered ineffective. Now we see a mo- we see the progressive mockery the bowstrings the ropes the weaving of the hair but finally after his strength has left him and he has been bound and shorn of hair then he is bound and then he is seized he was only able to be seized after they after he became weaker the strong man must be bound. And the strong man can only be bound by a stronger man. So, the truth here is, in order to plunder what's controlled by Satan, by sin, Jesus first must bind and overpower him and render him ineffectual. Jesus has already pointed out the obvious absurdity of the scribe's statement, so we're left with the only conclusion. That Jesus is the stronger man. The strongest man. The evidence for which is his casting out of the demons and he is able to conquer the power of sin and death. The kingdom of Satan that has plagued the world since the garden. Once he is bound, he is powerless and then, and only then can his stronghold be plundered. This is the true object of Jesus' coming. Jesus did not come to overthrow the Romans or the religious leaders. His focus was on a much stronger enemy, one who no human sword could defeat, Satan himself. Jesus came to preach the gospel of repentance, repent and believe in the gospel. The healing and the miracles were not the ends in themselves, as the crowds were, what was entertaining the crowds, but the But it was the evidence that the cosmic rebellion by Satan and his minions is being won by Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus is on the move. This is the true focus of Jesus' ministry. To plunder the strong man by conquering sin and death. This is the gospel in a nutshell. The subversion of a strong man by a stronger man. The strongest man and the freeing of the plunder, God's good creation. The binding of evil is so so thoroughly undermined Satan that even when he appears to have succeeded in destroying Jesus on the cross, Jesus has so thoroughly bound him that it results not in the destruction of the Son, but in the total and absolute victory of Christ over sin and death. Jesus' power over the evil spirits makes it clear that he is working against Satan, not with Satan, and because Jesus is the strongest man, the end of the strong man's rule is imminent and sin and death will be defeated. Now that the strong man, the prince of this world, is bound, How do we find ourselves on the winning side of this conflict? Since we know that those supporting the strong man will ultimately share his fate, eternal separation from God. First, we must examine our own response to Jesus so that we might not be in opposition to him like the cast of characters today in today's reading. Jesus illustrates this in the final parable that also serves as a rebuke to his family. Through this episode, his family is still looking for him to seize him, to restrain him, and to oppose him. When, the, when they finally find him, they refuse to approach him, We're rather expecting that Jesus would stop what he's doing and go to them. When the crowd sees his family, they send word to him that his family is waiting for him, but rather than go to them, He responds with a question. Who are my mother and brothers? Such a question was likely shockingly obvious. Obviously, it's the people looking for you. This woman gave birth to you. She's clearly your family. What the crowd missed is that Jesus was far more concerned with people becoming his spiritual family. If Jesus is stronger than the man whose rule will last forever, then his kingdom will not be opposed to itself. His spiritual family will be united. Therefore, if someone's opposed to the work of Jesus, they're not his true family. In this way, he both rebukes his earthly family and explains the distinctive of his true family. In verse 35, whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. What is the will of God? We're told in many places. In John chapter 6, we're told that this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. That's the will of God. We must examine our own response to Jesus, that we might not be in opposition to him like these other groups, but that we would do the will of God by believing in him who he has sent. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, lest we forget a layer of the sandwich. As the fruit that we are doing the will of God that we believe we must also preach the gospel. We come to this conclusion from the structure of the text. This entire episode is sandwiched between texts that are about preaching the gospel and dealing with others' responses to it. If we are truly Jesus' family, then we will be of the same mind as him, which means sharing the gospel that others might come to repent and believe in him who was sent. We must go. We must make disciples of all nations. We must warn that the prince of this world is defeated and that serving him will only lead to their own demise. We must show them the way of life. But in doing so, we must not fall into the error that says that because Jesus did it, so must I. There are things that are not ours to do. We are not called to bind the strong man ourselves. Jesus has already done this because he is the stronger man. He is the strong man. If we could bind the strong man ourselves, then we would have no need for Christ's atoning sacrifice. Those bent on binding Satan as an end in and of itself. Will find, them, will find themselves in a very sorry state. And we see churches that do this. We see churches that that's what they're bent on in and of itself. Go out and bind Satan. We see a warning in the text. Well, not, not in this text, but in Acts. How does this work out for people that go and do that for their own ends? simply as being entertained. Well, we see how this plays out in Acts chapter 19. After the seven sons of Siva try to cast out demons as some type of parlor trick to demonstrate their own power, we're told that they go out making the statements that I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaimed. But the evil spirit answered back and said, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered them all, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. We're not called to bind the strong man. Jesus has already done that. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to plunder his house. Preach the gospel. Repent and believe. So that man can... That all who hear can move from death into life. The gospel of Jesus is on the move. And no power of hell or earth can oppose it. As his family we must proclaim the victory that has been won through Christ's atoning sacrifice that all who hear the gospel would believe and follow him. Praise God that the strong man has been bound. Let us pray. Father, we thank you We thank you that the strong man has been bound. That the power of sin and death has been broken and was broken on the cross. We thank you for the freedom that that brings. The freedom to follow you. The only way that we can experience true life. Father, I pray that we would be so overjoyed, that we would be so filled with that, that we would want to go, that we would share the gospel, that it all who hear would believe and move from death into life. We thank you and we praise you for the deeds that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.